0: Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at coreanesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back
1: to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to do a care plan on laparoscopic cholecystectomy. This is, in my opinion, one of the cookie-cutter laparoscopic cases that we can get our hands on early in our schooling and something that really kind of teaches us the principles of a standard general anesthetic plan and a laparoscopic procedure. Uh, Not saying that it isn't a serious case that we need to be taken seriously every time, but it is one of those that kind of walk you through uh, a typical picture of a general anesthetic plan and a laparoscopic procedure. Obviously, what it is, is the removal of the gallbladder. This is usually done laparoscopically, can be also done open. I also just did one today that was a robotic procedure as well. So just know there's different variations of this. Typically, I feel like it's laparoscopic. It's known as a lap coli, if you are unfamiliar with that terminology. The idea here is that there's going to be Little incisions made on the abdomen where they're going to put trocars through. One's going to have a camera. Others are going to be ports that they can use to bring in their tools to then dissect and remove the gallbladder out through one of those holes. It's usually a relatively fast procedure under two-hour range.
0: Initially, when you think about this case, positioning is going to be supine. You'll do your induction with the patient supine, obviously, and they'll start to make their incisions for their ports for their different trocars here in the supine position. They may have you tilt the patient left or right a little bit as they're doing this initial part. Uh, And then as the procedure gets going here, they're going to place the patient in steep reverse Trendelenburg. This is going to allow the abdominal contents to basically shift away from their surgical field and will give them a better view to work there within the abdominal cavity. Some things that you need to think about in the reverse Trendelenburg position is that your head is going to be higher than the heart. And so like we talked about with sitting position, you need to remember that there's going to be a gradient or a change there between the blood pressure at the head and the blood pressure at the heart. This won't be as significant as the sitting position. But you don't want to let your map sag too low because, again, remember your cerebral perfusion is going to be dependent there on your map. And, again, that's going to be less just simply because it's a little bit higher there than the level of the heart. You also want to make sure that they have a non-sliding mattress there on the table so that the patient is not going to slide once they are put in the steep Trangelenburg position. Like Cole mentioned, this could be done robotically as well. So keeping the patient static on the bed is going to be very important just for their instrumentation and obviously for patient safety. So, after you get the patient placed here in the reverse Trendelenburg, the next thing that you want to think about is that they're about to insufflate the abdomen. So, as they create this new peritoneum, you're going to see changes here with your respiratory pattern, your peak pressures, things like that. So, initially, when you place them in reverse Trendelenburg, you're actually going to see a better respiratory picture because your FRC will increase because of all those abdominal contents shifting away. There's better room there for the lungs to inflate. As they insufflate with the CO2, though, this is going to cause increased pressure in that abdominal cavity. First thing that you'll see is a increase in your peak pressures. If this is significant enough, then you may need to have them desufflate just a little bit so that you are not having these incredibly high peak pressures. You can change your ventilator setting from volume control to a pressure control so that you are not causing any trauma there to the lungs. The main thing that you'll see though, initially, and this is something that I read about, but you legitimately will see this is a vagal response as they insulate the abdomen. This is something that some people will pre-treat with just 0.1 or 0.2 of Robodol. From my experience, this is on every case. And so I don't pre-treat with Robodol, but I have it sitting out there on my anesthesia cart. So be ready because this is often very, very pronounced as they insulate the abdomen, you can have a vagal response. You can tell them to stop that the patient isn't tolerating it. They may need to let you treat and then uh, you know try insufflating again. So this might be kind of a stepwise fashion instead of just insufflating all at once.
1: So some of the big things that we want to watch out for with the pneumoperitoneum is sub-Q air as they maybe are not getting that insufflation to go directly into that abdominal cavity, but they're maybe between layers and it, it goes in the sub-Q space. You're going to see a rapid increase in your PaCO2 and your end CO2 this happens, decrease your pneumoperitoneum pressure, stop any nitrous if you're using that, give 100% FiO2, increase your minute ventilation to get off that uh, increase in PaCO2, and then also verify they don't have a pneumothorax or a malignant hyperthermia type picture that would also uh, cause that increase in entitled in CO2 uh, in terms of checking uh, their heart rate, if it's tachycardic, if they have masseter spasm, etc. If a gas embolism develops, from that CO2, then you're going to see a reduction in that entitled CO2, and so you want to again stop the insufflation, stop any nitrous that you're using for your anesthetic, flood the field with normal saline, put that patient in the left lateral to keep it in position, and aspirate any gas via CVC if you do have a CVC. So also keep in mind that opioids are going to increase the risk of spasms in the biliary tract. I know we're going to be removing the gallbladder, so I mean, I don't know how much consideration you're going to play into this, but just keep that in mind. A pretty standard emergent here, uh, just make sure the patient, if you're going to be getting them back breathing, try to have that occur after they have removed their trocars and instrumentation out of the belly. We just don't want any uh, safety hazards to come up during this point if they still have the instrumentation in the belly. So Usually, what I will do is wait for them to uh, deflate the abdomen. Oftentimes, they'll either suction the CO2 out or they'll also press on the belly and try to get as much of that out as possible. And I wait until this point before I flip that patient back to breathing spontaneously. In terms of the wake-up though, it's pretty standard. Uh, Once the instrumentation is out, I switch them back to breathing, reverse them, uh, pretty much wait for them to be fully awake, and then extubate. Uh, You can still do a deep technically here. Uh, Typically, I just wait for them to be awake though, but you do have the option either or. Other than that, postoperatively, oftentimes there's some Tylenol. I know some surgeons are hesitant to give any Toradol uh, just because it does increase the risk of the spasm and the biliary tract right after the procedure. So an immediate postoperative period.
0: So that's something to keep in mind as well as the opioids. The only other thing that I'll add for your extubation is I had one case where their trocars were slightly mispositioned. And so that inflation gas was actually going sub Q. And we caught this during the case because our end title was raising. We were kind of doing all the same things that Cole mentioned earlier about managing your end title CO2. Then when I looked at the patient's face, they were almost unrecognizable because of all this additional sub-Q air. They had crepitus all around their shoulders and along their face, things like that. If you do have that, we caught it early enough where the surgeon was able to reposition their trocars and the gas basically reabsorbs. This typically doesn't take too long to reabsorb. So if this were the scenario and you're getting towards the end of your case, you may want to consider waiting to excavate this patient just until some of that gas is reabsorbed, do a leak test, make sure that you have air moving on either side of your endotracheal tube, and just so you don't run into any respiratory complications with basically a, a swelling or an edematous picture, I know it's air, but uh, it's kind of the same principles as if you had a very edematous patient from being prone or something like that. Hopefully, this is helpful. Hopefully, this gives you a good idea of what you can expect when you do your lap. Play.